Okay, today is Tuesday, November the 29th, 2011. A few announcements. There will be no Bible class next Tuesday. I'm going to be at a conference in Dallas. And there'll be no young people's class on Wednesday. I'll still be in Dallas at that time. Um, we had a fairly good turnout at the night to remember Israel. It was uh, interesting, wasn't it? <laughs> there was a lot of folks there, and that is a big place. And there were things I liked about it and things I didn't like so much about it. But it was I think it was worth the trip. Didn't you all figure it was worth the trip? I was... Uh, we had to park in a, in a parking lot. They had a tram to take us to the synagogue. And I sat next to a Jewish lady, and we started talking. And she looked a little nervous, I think, because she pretty well figured that she was sitting next to a, a Gentile, pr probably Christian. And so <coughs> she asked me where I was from, and I said Brenham. She didn't know where that was, and I said Bluebell. She said, oh, okay. And she said, well, uh, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And her eyes went <laughs> like this. Oh, no. So uh, I tried to reassure her that we were there to support Israel, the nation of Israel, and that we are their friends. And she said that she appreciated us being there. And uh, uh, the men were, were given a yarmulke to put on their head, on the back of their head. That is a strange feeling if you haven't done that before. I, I was going to wear it like this, but it was like a beanie. And they said, no, put it back here. And I kept thinking it was going to fall off. Anyway, <coughs> well, when you don't have much hair, sometimes they they bobby pin it on there, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if you're required. They were handing it to people. And so I guess if somebody really objected, they wouldn't have made a big fuss. They didn't say anything? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, that that's, uh, feels a little strange. Well, uh, <coughs> let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this time that we can prepare. We desire to be good and faithful servants, and we, re we recognize that that means that we have to inculcate your word into our soul and be able to stand firm for the faith no matter who it is that would approach us, no matter what their belief system may be, we need to be at the ready. So we pray that you will help us to do that that you will help us to file into long-term memory the things that we learned this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're in James chapter 2. And this is the place where most people will go if they have had any training. If they know anything about the Bible and you're giving them faith alone in Christ alone, this is where they are going to go 
in, in order to refute the idea that it only takes faith in order to be eternally saved. Their contention is that it also requires works. And when you go to chapter 2, those who would want to usually just cite the last six words of James 2.14, faith without works is dead. Now, when someone cites that, when someone says that, when you're giving them the gospel, if you remember what, what's the first thing that should come into your mind, uh, the, probably the, you will have an urge to start giving them all the doctrines that you know on soteriology to straighten them out. And if you do that, chances are they're going to tune out and wait for you to talk, stop talking so they can get their part in. So the best thing to do in every case is to ask them what they mean by that. Ask them questions. Well, what does that mean? Faith without works is dead. What does that have to do with eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ? And I think that probably most of them are going to stumble a bit because they're not used to having to defend what they believe. And then the thing that you, you have to remember, this is the overwhelming major point that you cannot concede. Because if you concede this, the game is over. James chapter 2 has nothing, nada, zero, zilch to do with eternal salvation. And they're coming from that presupposition. They hold this. That's why they're going there. Because when you're giving the gospel to someone, they think, well, this is talking about the gospel and that they have an edge because they go, they're going to deflate you simply by uh, giving you a phrase, faith without works is dead. So that's one of the things that you have to keep foremost. Our job is to convince them that this is not about eternal salvation. And the first key in doing that, if you remember, is who is James talking to? Believers. So James is not writing to unbelievers to give them the gospel. Obviously, if they're believers, they have already believed the gospel. And he calls them brethren several times. He also says that they are, they, they have the Spirit of God, which no believer, uh, excuse me, unbeliever has. So once you make that distinction, it starts to erode to a degree what they're thinking. And I thought of something today. You know, sometimes you think, well, I, I have all my bases covered. I've already uh, thought of all the questions you can ask someone in that case. But I thought of another question today. It just came into my mind. If James is writing to believers, and he is, why would he be giving them instruction concerning the gospel, especially that it also requires works if they've already had gotten the gospel? Wouldn't they already know that? I mean, if, if they are believers, certainly if works are required, they would already know that works are required because James would have told them when he gave them the gospel originally. So why would he write to believers who have, sec who have accepted the gospel and they already understand, according to their point of view, that it requires faith plus works? Why would he write them again and make a big point about in order to be saved eternally, you have to have 
faith plus works. If he had not mentioned that to begin with, and works are required, then they wouldn't be saved, would they? So why would, they, why would he have to mention works again as being part of the gospel if they were already saved? That would be a good question. Yes. Okay, she said that some people will, when you say that, will say, well, you have to keep working uh, unto the end to make sure you're saved. And, and they, of course, they believe that. And it depends on where you are in the conversation and who, you, who they are. You might just completely disregard that if it's going to be a distraction and stay on focus on, on the issue at hand. But if someone told me that you have to Endure to the end to be saved. I would first of all, first of all, what are you going to do? What is your? If someone said that to you or anything like it, what is your first thing that comes to your mind? What are you going to do? You're going to ask them a question. How about to the end of what? And be saved from what? And where is that in the Bible? Chances are they don't know. It's in Matthew chapter 24, and of course it's not referring to, it is not salvific either. It's referring to believers who endure to the end of the tribulation will be delivered into the millennium. That's what it's talking about. But that's another one of those catchphrases that someone's heard that tries to change the gospel into something that it is not. We must endure to the end to be saved. So you're going to ask questions. And that's another question. If these are believers already, why has he given them instructions on how to be saved? Isn't that a good, viable question? If he didn't tell them that to begin with, then they're not saved. And if he told them already, then why is he telling them again? Why is he making a point? That just came to my head. I thought it was uh, worth mentioning anyway. Um, <clears throat> so here's the thing. They, in their mind, are convinced that this is salvific, that this is what is necessary to be eternally saved is to have faith plus works. Now, in the course of being able to convince them that that is not the case, do you remember what you want to do? Do you remember how to present a dilemma in their own mind, in their own method of thinking? What do you do? Remember I said that you have to have a few gospel verses, faith alone and Christ alone type verses, already up here because you probably won't have a Bible. Now, if, if every, everything else fails, you can revert to John 3.16. But verses like Ephesians 2.8 and 9, powerful verse. Romans 4.5, Galatians 2.16, Titus 3.5, uh, if you know that many, or even just a couple of those, would suffice. Second Corinthians five nineteen. These are if you just know one or two of those, everybody should know Ephesians two eight nine anyway. Now, if you bring one of those verses out, if they say, "Well, yes, you have to have good works to be saved," maybe the Holy Spirit might bring into your mind to ask him, "Saved from what?" You might say, who is, who is he talking to 
And what are they saved from? Wouldn't that be a good place to start, maybe? Because if they are able, they're going to say, well, let's talk about being saved from hell. You want them to say that. You want them to acknowledge that this is what they, they, they believe. And once they say that, before you jump on any bandwagon, you want to, remember the two questions I, I said would be good to ask them to nail it down? If you ask them, is the, is the Word of God inspired? Is, 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 is God's Word inspired by God? Is it inerrant? Is, is that what we can agree on? What's the chances of them saying, no, it's not inspired and you can't count on it when they just quoted a verse to you? What's the chances that they're going to do that? Now, I, I admit what we're talking about is using strategy. We're talking about using a tactic. But it is extremely powerful if you use it. So once you get that agreement, yes, it is, it is the Word of God. It is inspired. Then you can say something along the lines, well, you're confused. And they're going to like that. Oh, they would love to straighten you out. They would love to have a convert, proselyte someone. So when you, when you either say or show that you're confused, they love it. Now what are you going to do next? They've already pronounced faith without works is dead. They quoted a scripture. You've held their feet to the fire. Okay, yeah, the word of God is inspired. The word of God is inerrant. And now you're confused. And then they're not going to know why you're confused. That's when you bring out the verses. That's when you bring out, let's say, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 by Paul. Does, does Paul and... And James disagree with each other? Are they at odds with each other? Are they contradicting each other? Because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. So you're just giving the, the, the rundown there. Uh, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you just know that one, it's enough to be their undoing. Because now they're confused. You, all you're doing is say, can you clarify that? I need some help understanding this. You're saying that you have to have works to be eternally saved. And here over here, this is James. You have Paul over here saying just the opposite. What's the deal? What do you suppose they're going to say? I'm, I'm not sure what they're going to say, but it'd be, won't it be fun to find out? Because the, 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 here's the thing. There is no solution to that dilemma as long as they hold to the thinking that that is salvific, that it is talking about eternal. There is no way to reconcile that. And you're pointing this out. You're wanting this. And don't you try to reconcile it. You have them do it. Put it on them. You said that it takes faith plus works in order to be eternally saved. And now you, the, right, the reason you know that is because you asked them to articulate to have them explain what they mean by faith is w without works is dead. And what does that have to do with, with the gospel and salvation? And they're going to explain to you, oh, well, you have to have works. And then you go to, you, you're confused, you go to James, I mean to Second uh, Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 is, is an example. And now there's a dilemma. And it has to be addressed. 
Now, at this point, you're in the catbird seat. You know what that means? You are exactly where you want to be. Because you have the answer and they do not. And I, you can't guarantee that they're going to stay tuned in because they might be embarrassed. They might, well, you know, I just remember uh, I've got somewhere I need to be and, and cut out. There's nothing you can do about that. But you at least planted a seed of doubt in their mind about what they say. So once they, they're, they're trying to reconcile it, they, they can't. They don't know what to do about it. I don't know what they might say, but there is no solution as long as they uphold that false doctrine. So you might say, well, you know, <coughs> here's a thought. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I, I want you to think through this so you will be able to do the same thing. Here's a thought. Maybe James and Paul aren't talking about the same thing. Maybe Paul is talking about something that is referring to eternal life, eternal salvation and going to heaven, and maybe James isn't. Because after all, he's talking to believers. Why would he be giving the believers the gospel again? Did he leave something out? If he left something out, then they're not believers. You see the road you're, you're trying to go down. And so at that point, what do you do then? <laughs> you call me. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> Pardon? Well, you could ask them that. That's another tact you can take. Uh, when they, you, everything that I'm telling you, I think, is a very good approach. But there's not only one approach. Here's what I want you to understand above everything else. You are going to have them question what they believe and to find out that it doesn't make sense. Because when they say faith without works is dead and you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you've got to have uh, works in order to be eternally saved. And Rachel said a question you could ask them is, how many works? How many works does it take? Now, you don't want to do this in a challenging way like you want to make an argument. What you want to do is, hey, if my eternal destiny depends on believing in Jesus Christ, which I've already done, but it also requires works, then I need to know how many works does it take. Do I need to get a clipboard and count my works each day? And how, is it on a daily basis that we keep count? Monthly basis or yearly basis? And, and not only what, uh, how many works does it take, but what kind of works? What works count as going towards my eternal salvation? What is that? What happened? Did I miss something? Uh, anyway, what, what, do you, what do you do in that case? I mean, what are they going to do? And not only are you going to ask them, to sh how many works does it take? What kind of works does it take? And you need to find it in the Bible because you're not just going to take their word for it. Now, are they going to be able to find such a thing in the Bible? Are they yes or no? That wasn't very resounding. Yes or no? No. Are you absolutely certain? Okay. <laughs> One person is certain. Absolutely certain. See, you can't ask these questions with dogmatism and, uh, and certainty, if you're not sure, you're afraid they might find one. Let me tell you, 
I've logged, I've logged a lot of hours in studying the Bible, and I have never seen a verse that even comes close to saying that you have to have works in order to be saved. Now, if they can't find that, if they can't find how many works it would take, and they can't tell you how, what kind of works it would take, then I would ask another question. What, I'm worried. What kind of God is going to require us to do good works to be saved, and we don't even know how many it takes or what kind of works? Now, we're really in trouble, aren't we? Wouldn't God surely, if he makes, if he makes a, a requirement of having works added to our faith, and not telling us how many works or what kind of works, could anyone ever know whether they're saved or not? Could anyone know if they have eternal life or not? And now I'm really getting confused because 1 John 5.13 says, These things I've written to those who believe in the Son of God that they may know that they have eternal life. How can they know if they don't know how many works it takes or what kind of works it takes? And you're directing them all towards this person. And you're not being combative. You're not trying to argue. They brought it up. You're just trying to get clarification. You see what I'm talking about? You're not arguing with them. What do you think they're going to be doing in their mind long about that time? Because I've talked, listen, I have talked to these people. And sometimes they say, well, um, when it comes, I'm thinking the other, and that's just one side of the coin is the good works. You've got to have good works. On the other side, you can't stray too, off, too far off course. You can't commit too many sins or else you lose your salvation or it's proof you never were saved to begin with. What do you say, say to something like that? Now, I want you to think. I want you to start thinking in this pattern. If someone says, oh, well, you, yeah, you, you can't sin too much, what's your question? How many sins can I, can I commit before I lose my salvation? How many sins do I have to commit before it proves I was never saved to begin with? And where do I find that in the Bible? See, some people, most, let me put it this way, most people who will go to James 2 will also allege that you can lose your salvation. What are you going to do when they do that? Don't you have some questions about that? First of all, I want to know one verse in the Bible, anywhere, that says any believer, any time through history, has ever lost his salvation. I want to find that first. I, I've asked that to Jehovah Witnesses before. And that's about the time they're, they, they're ready to go out the door. They'll come up, they've come up with something that wasn't even close, and they knew it. That's one question you might ask them. Or you might ask them this, okay, how does one know, if it's not given in the Bible, how many works it takes or how many sins will... will uh, make you lose your salvation. I can't ever know for sure. But if I don't know for sure, how can I know if I've lost it? In other words, how can anyone know anything for sure if it's not stated in the Bible? If there's not some figures, if there's not some statistics, if there's not some data there that goes along that idea, how can you know anything? And if you can lose your salvation, can you regain it? And how would you know if you regained it? And what would it take for you to regain it? And if you regained it, can you lose it again? You know what you're doing? You're tying them in knots. You're asking questions that probably no one has ever asked them before. And it forces them to think, which 
they may have never done in their to entire life with regards to anything of a theological nature. They hear something from somebody, that sounds pretty good, I think I'll use that. And that's, just, it's that, that's the, how shallow it is. And you start questioning it. Why do you believe that? Where in the Bible does it substantiate that? I'm not trying to argue if my eternal destiny is on the line, I need to know these things. And where is it? You're probably going to get an answer like, you know, I'm going to get back with you on that one. Or I, I, I'll need to ask my pastor and then I'll, I'll get back. But at least you've done the primary thing is to get them to think. Now this is all, I didn't mean to spend that much time on this. All this is a prelude to what we're going to study tonight. But I want you to get out of the mode of just saying everything you know about Jesus and the gospel and think you've done your job. These are powerful tactics. You know what they are? They are divine dynamite. These are how we are able to take these satanic thoughts, these satanic uh fortresses and what we do with them is bring them down and we do it by capturing making every thought captive to the obedience to christ actually it's the authority of christ and you don't do that by here someone's asking you a question it's the first time you ever thought i wonder how i should reply to that no you've been trained you've been you you have been taught tactics to use and they are they are so powerful you can't believe it some people might say, oh, well, you're leaving the Holy Spirit out. No, I'm not. You can't convince anybody of anything apart from the Holy Spirit. But most people don't have others think about what they're saying. All this person does when he says faith without works is dead, what he does is put the responsibility on you to defend what you believe. And all he's going to do is sit there the whole time. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. When you ask questions, that's one thing you'll not hear from someone. When you ask some person a question, that one thing you're never going to hear is, I don't believe it, because that's not an answer to a question, is it? What they have to do is think. Okay, I'm going to move on. I'm just, every, every time in James 2, I'm going to kind of go through this little scenario until you all have it pat in your mind that you're going to take that tennis ball, and every time it's in your court, wham, it's right back into their court. Comes again, backhanded, wham, right into their court. And they're going to be dodging. And you do that by asking a question. That's how you get the court, the, the, the ball back in their court, is by asking them questions as to why do you believe that? I want to know. It's important. And you're not arguing. You're just getting information. Oh, oh, I don't want to do that. I pushed the wrong one. Can I do this? Okay. Whew. All right. We were at James chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to, him, to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? James is using an ex example, an illustration, of someone who knew the doctrine. They knew the doctrine of impersonal love, unconditional love, compassion, mercy, all these things, but they weren't applying it. Excuse me. 
You don't get him what's necessary for the body. What good is that? So, even so, now he's bringing it into the real world here. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Again, most people look at this and they try to put a salvific spin to it. It won't fit. James had already pointed out in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, that his brethren were already showing partiality to the rich and were slighting the poor and showing them uh, no compassion. So now he's going to give a practical illustration of it. Now, that was in the previous chapter. He's already have been on their case for not applying the doctrine that they knew. And now he's just given a practical application of this. James 1.22, then he explained the Bible doctrine and applied uh, that, that Bible doctrine not applied is as useless as telling a hungry, naked person to be warmed and filled without giving them any food. It's of no use whatsoever. By the way, what's another key? I, I'm, when we're talking about faith, what do they think faith means when they see it? What do they think it means? It, remember that we went to the dictionary, we looked at these, these words. One of the definitions is what someone believes in order to have eternal life. That is one of them. But then the, an, another definition that is just as relevant is the body of knowledge. The, the teaching, the training, the, we would just call it doctrine. It's what a person has faith in. It is that knowledge, that, that body of knowledge. And, of course, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking to believers. What good is it if you have doctrine and you don't apply it? And I ask you, what if you have been taught doctrine and you don't remember it? Is it going to do you any good? When I was in high school, we had lockers with little locks on them and had the little dial and you turned the deal? What good is it if you had a lock and you knew the combination but you couldn't remember it? What good is it? Have you ever said, well, I know it. I remember that. I know it. But you need it and it's not there. What good is it? It is useless. And we went over uh, all the words. I, I need to get on by here, but y'all probably need this anyway. Even so, faith, that body of knowledge that you have accumulated, that you've been taught, the doctrine that's in your soul, if it has no works, if it doesn't have any application, it's dead, being by itself. It'd be like trying to get across country back in the... 19th century and someone brought you a horse <coughs> and you're so glad that they brought you a horse but when they got there with the horse the horse was dead what good is it huh let's see if I can get past uh, he's talking about here door here's the dead see in death uh, death the first definition one who is no longer physically alive a dead person a dead body a corpse to one who is spiritually obtuse dull lacking sharpness that's what obtuse means <coughs> as to be in effect dead it's a figurative way of using it 
So the people who had the doctrine and they weren't using it were not physically dead. They did have the ability to come out of their lethargic uh, mode. They could come out of being dull and lacking sharpness in their spiritual life, which would be the second meaning, not the first. Okay, uh... It was an indictment for believers who lack spiritual vigor, is what James is doing, and who are in danger of a premature physical death, divine discipline. Here's, here's one thing. I'm gonna, I was going to put this in red. I'm really going to really hammer this. This is what I want you to know because this is what James was saying. Dead doctrine in the soul can be fatal. A dead doctrine is one that you can't remember, Doctrine that you were taught that you don't apply for whatever reason? People think, well, there's no consequence. There is a consequence. That's what James is talking about. You might die the sin unto death. God might cut your life short if you have doctrine that's dead in your soul and not being applied. That's what that's about. So dead doctrine can be fatal. We talked about deadbeat dads. There are deadbeat believers. That's what he's talking about. Now, the faith plus works for salvation crowd put a literal spin on this word. They allege that if the faith one has in Jesus Christ is not accompanied by works, faith is literally dead. It cannot save anyone. Well, the whole point, that's not what James is talking about. He's talking to believers, and he's talking about the type of faith that is the data, it is the body of knowledge that isn't that doesn't have works it's not being applied now according to this rationale if one did not provide food and clothes to the needy that is their rationale they would go to hell because they don't have the works it makes one wonder what other things one must do to maintain salvation how does this rationale agree with by grace are you saved you see what i'm talking about here in this verse, if this is salvific, and he gives the illustration that you have to give clothes to the, to the naked, you have to give food to the hungry, and if you don't do that, then your faith is dead, and faith without works is dead, and if this is salvific, you're going to hell. You have to do this, and if you don't do it, you either never had salvation or you've lost it. And it just makes me wonder, James was just giving one illustration. What other things must a person do in order to maintain his salvation if this is salvific? Wouldn't that be a good question to ask? Let me get back where I was here now. And how does this agree with, by grace are you saved through faith? How does that agree with it? You need to be asking this question to people. And you, again, I need to emphasize, it's not jutting your jaw out and trying to argue. It's you're confused. Listen, I'm looking at you. Y'all got that one down. It's easy to look confused. And you're fixing to get a lot more confused because we're fixing to get in the deep end of the pool. So get ready. If one isn't saved by faith alone, 
by, uh, if, one, excuse me, if one isn't saved by faith alone, but by faith plus works, surely the Bible would tell us how many works are required. It would tell us what kind of works are necessary to secure eternal life. Answer these questions would be critical to our understanding of eternal salvation. So where does one go in the Bible to find these answers? Most people who sign on to the work to maintain salvation idea will not hesitate to say that salvation can be lost. A good way to respond to that assertion is to ask them to point out someone in the Bible who had lost their eternal salvation. If what they say is true, it should be easy to find numerous examples, shouldn't it? I mean, if people need to work to maintain their eternal salvation, look, people are no damn good, and we all know it. So there should be Tons of examples of people who fell off the bad wagon and lost their salvation. And all we want to do is find one. You think that might put a dent in their theology? Now there's another group we will consider later that believe a person who believes in Jesus Christ but does not produce good works has never been saved to begin with. That's the hyper-Calvinist crowd or just the Calvinist crowd. They had, they had a faulty faith because true faith will automatically produce good works. Now, I'm not saying this, this is all false, but that's what they bought into. If that is true, why do the writers of Scripture never question or doubt salvation of those who they knew were already saved? Even though many of them were not acting like it, like the Corinthians. These writers, however, seem to be consumed with the consequences of spiritual failure in the lives of believers, but they never question their salvation. You ever notice that? That'd be another good question to ask. All right, now we are going to get into the deep end. Y'all ready? I was going to bring some smart pills, but I'm fresh out. How many of you heard me tell the joke about the smart pills? Everyone? Everyone heard about the, huh? Okay, well, it just takes a second. Uh, <coughs> No, 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 no. The little boy went to uh, had ten dollars. Went to the fair. This is a long time ago, and one of the snake oil salesmen said he had uh, smart pills. That they were the, they would far exceed anybody's expectation, and there was only three pills in there for ten dollars. That was a lot of money then. So he sold this little boy on it. He thought, well, uh, you know, I. I I want to do better in school, so I'll buy it. And so he gave him the $10. And he took one of the smart pills out, and he ate it, and he said, That's, that tastes like rabbit pellets. He said, See there, you're getting smart already. <laughs> I had to clean it up. <laughs> okay. Uh, but someone will may, may well say, in what the Greek means here, but someone will certainly say is what that means. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, y'all tell me what that means. It's a mishmash, isn't it? First of all, James is using a debater's technique here, which sometimes is called the straw man. He anticipated the, out, uh, the objection that some believers would surely make so he presents what they would say <coughs> excuse me, before they even have a chance to verbalize it so that he could rebut it. He's not waiting for them to come along and say, yeah, but. See, what James is doing is he is linking 
faith, the Bible doctrine that a person has learned in their soul with application. He's doing it because these believers had the knowledge, they had the doctrine, but they didn't have the application. Now, he is linking those two things together. So now he is creating the straw man, uh, an objector over here. This is James pretending that he's one of them objecting to what he's saying. They are objecting to the idea that faith is connected to works, that if you have doctrine, that you also are required to apply it. They don't like that because they're not applying it. They're taking exception to that. They're going to try to make an excuse. So this is the rebuttal that they would give to James, but he's making it for them. You got that? Okay. Verse 18 and 19 presents the perspective of a believer who rejects James's assertion that there is a connection between faith and works. The straw man presents a scenario that he thinks will prove his point. This is what they would be saying. No, James, you're wrong, and I'm going to prove it to you. This kind of argument is called what is called a reductio ad absurdum. That's Latin. It means reducing someone's claim to absurdity. That's what they're doing to James. Okay? It is heavy with irony. This is a quote, by the way, from the uh, epistle of James from Zane Hodges. He says, quote, It is heavy with irony, this rebuttal that James is making for them. It is... Uh, Absurd, says the objector, to see a close connection between faith and works. For the sake of argument, let's say you have faith and I have works. This, now we're getting down. This is what he's explaining. This is what their case is. You have faith and I have works. Let's start there. You can no more start with what you believe and show it to me in your works than I can start with my works and demonstrate what it is that I believe. The objector is confident that both, both tasks are impossible. You see what I'm saying? Look at the first one again. He says, uh, <clears throat> you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. Can you do that? Can a person that has faith, can he demonstrate his faith without works? Can, he, can you demonstrate what you believe without any works. Is that possible? No, that's what he's saying. You can't do it. And then he's taking even the other side. He says, now, what about the one who has works? He says, uh, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I can't do it. And he says, if you can do that, then I will show you my faith by my works. Now, this is where it's a little tricky. If you are thinking in the soteriological realm, it does not fit. Because if I have, what is, the, what is the definition of a legalistic person? Don't they have a lot of works? If you're in the, in, in the salvific realm, just because you have a lot of works, does it automatically prove that you have Faith in Jesus Christ? Aren't there a lot of people out there working hard to 
gain and maintain their salvation, but it doesn't prove that they have faith in Christ, does it? No. And there are people out there that do have faith in Christ, like these these uh, believers that James is writing to, and they don't have any works. A believer can leave, live a life just like an unbeliever, can't he? So what he what what this objector is trying to do is say, see, works have no connection with faith. They have to do that to make their case because they don't have any works. They don't have any application. And they're trying to convince James that what you taught us is fine and we've learned it. But don't expect us to apply it because there's no connection between applying what we've learned, the works, and the faith or the doctrine that we've learned. They're trying to dodge the bullet. James is putting the heat on them, and they're trying to dodge it. There's, what they're trying to say is there's no connection here, and this is their way to do it. If, you can, if I have faith and I have no works, I can't prove it. And if you can't do that, then I can't show you my faith by my works either. either. You got that? Now, James uses a debater's technique. Sometimes, oh, I already did that, didn't I? Okay, let's go down here. The, co- the objector is confident that both tasks are impossible. Then the objector, a straw man, tries to illustrate his point in the next verse. Now, this is so important because I have had at least on a half a dozen occasions people quote this to me to undermine the gospel. Here it is right here. Now, what, what this? remember, James is the one doing this. He is pretending that he is objecting to what he has already said because he knew that the people were going to do it anyway. He was going to do it for them so that he can tear it down before they even say anything. So they make this assertion that you cannot connect works with faith. And now they're going to illustrate it. You believe that God is one. This is still the objector saying this. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, that may not seem like it makes any sense to you yet, but just hang on. Remember, this is still the objector trying to make his case. He's trying to excuse his lack of application of doctrine he has learned. I've heard this, I've heard this verse quoted many times, but I never heard it quoted with the right interpretation. Now, what most people do, they just use these last six words. The demons also believe in shudder. In other words, you're telling someone, look, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It comes through faith and faith alone. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ and trust Him for your eternal salvation and not your works, and that moment you're born again and you're going to heaven and it's guaranteed. And someone else comes back and they say these six words. Well, uh, the demons also believe and they shudder. I said they. I, the demons also believe and shudder. So they just quote the last part of that verse. What are you going to do if somebody does that? What is the first thing that comes in your mind? What are you going to do? Just raise your hand if you know. Three people know? You don't know what to do? After all this, you don't know what to do. Ask a question! (laughs) See, you're not there yet. I can tell. Y'all are looking for an answer. There is no answer. There's only a question. There's always a question. Boy, we might have to linger here. Wow. Mm. Pardon? 
Well, if they said the demons also believe in shorter, I would say, oh, so what? What does that mean? I'm not going to take it for granted and spell it out what they're trying to convey. Chances are they can't even do it. They heard someone else say that. Here's a, I'll give you an example. I used to work part-time over at the log home buildings over here off the highway. And one of the salesmen in there was, he didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. And he heard us talking, uh, Phil Jenkins was a member of this church, and he heard us talking about the gospel and salvation and all, and he didn't like it. And he said, oh, no, it can't be that easy. it got to be more than that. He said, he says, I don't know enough about the Bible, but my wife knows enough, and I'm going to go home and ask her about it, and we'll, we'll see about this. So he did. He went home, came back, and he had, I still have it in my files at home. It was written on the back of an envelope. And he came back. He had this list of things to prove that it's not just faith alone in Christ that saves. And you know what the first thing on the list was? These six words. And he told me, he said, well, see there? The demons also believe in shudder. And I asked him, well, what does that mean? And you know what he did? He was shot down dead as a doornail right then. He said what, he read what she said, and he thought that was going to be my undoing. It wound up being his undoing when all I asked, well, what does that mean? He didn't have a clue. And what I'm telling you, that is probably going to be your experience most of the time that you throw it back on them. Listen, anytime anybody says anything that is contrary to the Word of God, what is your first response? Ask them a question. And I know you. Because I know me. And that's not what I want to do. Oh, I have this whole wealth of doctrine. I want to, I want to dump it on them right there. The whole load. You ever seen these big, long dump trucks? The 18-wheeler type? I want to dump it on them right then. And I think, well, boy, that showed them, didn't it? Yes. Okay, what would you say? What would you... The demons believed, and that didn't save them. What is your first? What are you going? You know it's going to be a question. So what are you going to ask them? What did they believe? That's good. Or what else? How about saved from what? It doesn't say saved anyway. It says that they were sh they shudder. Why are they shuddering? What does that prove? And I I can I, I want to guarantee you. I can't go that far to guarantee you. But when somebody says that, and you say. Uh, well, what is it they believe, and why do they shudder? I, I want to guarantee you they're not going to be able to answer you. I can't say that because if I guarantee you that, the first thing you're going to do is is bump into some theologian that <laughs> that's going to uh, befuddle you. <clears throat> they don't know, but you need to know why is he saying this. It's an unbeliever who's trying to argue that works must accompany faith in Christ or else one cannot be eternally saved. That's what they're trying to get across. What they're trying to get across is, okay, you say it's faith, but in James 2 it says the, the demons believe. It means they have faith and they shudder. In other words, their faith didn't do them any good. And you know what? They're right. But it's not salvific. See, that makes all the difference. 
But it, it is the objector that is arguing against James and making this assertion. His argument is that both demons and men believe in the same thing. And it says, you believe that there is, let's look at the whole, whole deal here. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe in shudder. So let's look at this. What is it that they're believing in? This is what, if they could articulate it, which they can't, but if they could, in their mind, if they could unscramble all that confusion and wipe out the cobwebs and articulate their false doctrine, this is what they'd be saying. They're arguing that James, against his assertion, their argument is that both demons and men believe in the same thing. In this case, it's monotheism, that God is one. Both demons and men, believers, are monotheistic. We're not polytheistic. We believe in one God. So do the demons. However, uh, and, well, I'll go on. He says, both believe that there is only one God, which of course is true, but their faith does not produce the same response. You see what they're trying to do? This objector is pretty shrewd. He's saying, okay, if there is a connection with faith and works, then why is it that both humankind and angelic kind, the fallen angels, both believe the same thing, that God is one, monotheistic, but it doesn't have the same results? Evidently, there's no connection between what they believe and what they do. Are you beginning to get it? Come on now. Do I need to repeat it? It's okay because this is... He is saying what he has got to prove. This is James becoming the straw man, becoming the objector so that he's going to tear this down. He's not going to wait for them to eject. He's going to do it for them and do a better job than they could anyway. And so they're saying that uh, all this mishmash about I have faith and you have works and show me all this... All, he, all they're trying to do is there's no connection between faith and works. And now they're going to an illustration. And they're saying, okay, if faith has a connection with works, then why is it that the demons believe and mankind believe in the same thing, in monotheism that God is one? And he says, you do well. And it's true. It is, it is true. But the result of that is completely different from the demons and believers. With regards to believers, it can produce something that is well, that's good. I said it can. But for demons, it never does. And they think that they've made their case. See, James, get off of our case. Quit hounding us about all this application because there's no, there is no connection between the two because demons and believers believe the same thing but don't have the same results, so there's no connection. That's what he's trying to to say. Although the faith in monotheism by a man may move him to do well, it never moves demons to do well. Their actions are evil and contrary to God, so they shudder because they know that they are under the condemnation of God. That's, by the way, that's why they shudder. That's why shudder is here. And if you want to look at, I'm not going to go here, but Matthew 8:29, Mark 1:24, uh, <clears throat> 2 Peter 2:4, Jude 6, 
And 1 Peter 3.19 have a bearing on this. Oh, man. Where'd the time go? I stood. I stayed too long on that first part. Uh, <clears throat> what I'm trying to show you is... Uh, let me give you this first. Demons tremble because they are under the condemnation of God, and believers tremble because they may come under the discipline of God if they fail to... Apply the doctrine they have learned. Did you know that there's a Bible, in, a verse in the Bible that says uh, that believers should tremble? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What about that one? Who's that talking to? Believers. Work out your salvation. See, there's that buzzword, salvation. What do people think when they see that, sign, that word? They think it's salvific. It is not salvific. It's not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about being delivered from being like these believers James is referring to that have no application. If you don't work, work out your deliverance. And what are you being delivered from, by the way? What is, James, what, what is uh, Paul talking about there? He's writing to Timothy. He's talking about deliverance from an early death. He's talking about being delivered from divine discipline. So in a way, we tremble. We are to tremble. We are to take our spiritual growth exceedingly serious because to the point to where we should tremble because we need to be delivered from something. What we need to be delivered from is the wrath of God that comes through divine discipline. Demons are trembling because they are condemned and they know they're condemned. And they tremble because they know what's coming next. And that's what you find in these verses in Matthew 8:29, Mark 1:24. It's talking about the guy in the Gadareans that had a demon possession. And Jesus Christ expelled. He, he was talking to the demons. And you know what they said? Have you come to torment us before our time? You're early. It's not supposed to happen yet. It shows that they dread it, that they, that they hate that idea. If I had time, I would take you to 1 Peter and tell you about the, the demons in Tartarus that are also shaking in their boots now. And the reason is because Jesus Christ made a little trip there. And he notified them, essentially, that their goose is cooked, their little ploy in cohabiting with the women in Genesis 6 did not work, that he did come from a true line of true humanity, unmixed by the angelic insertion there, and that he did go to the cross, and that he did pay the price for sin, and now salvation has been provided for mankind, and their goose is cooked. They are trembling. And you go to Jude chapter 6. Do I have that there? No, Jude chapter 6, and... Uh, it, it connects all those things. Now, I'm, throwing, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm out of time, and I'm throwing a lot of these things at you. I probably should just wait. I'll, I'll, I'll give those to you next time. But the, 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 the fact that these demons tremble, they do tremble. But they don't tremble for the same reason that believers are to tremble. If you just think about this, some of these verses, and there's many more that we're going to look at that talk about how... James, Paul, Peter, 
all of the writers of epistles, Jude, John, all of them emphasize the importance of getting with doctrine and sticking with it. They're, they're, they're not, none of them are emphasizing eternity in the sense of eternal life. We all, why would they? We already have it. Our ticket to heaven is guaranteed. And when they're talking about salvation in the salvific sense, that is usually what they are emphasizing. But all the time that they're saying, be careful, I'm giving you a warning. You better wake up. You better stand firm. You better get up out of your sleep. You're lethargic and you better get with doctrine because you can't just slide past in this life ignoring God and His Word without horrible, excruciating consequences. That's what it's all about. And this is what James is doing to these believers. How you think you... That just because you are going to heaven, you, you, you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, you think that's going to carry the day and you don't have to do anything, you don't have to provide any work, you don't have to be serious about your spiritual life, you better wake up. There is a connection between faith and works, between what you know and what you apply. And here's the thing, a lot of people don't even get to the knowing part. You can't apply it if you don't know it, can you? And a person that never grows spiritually at all is going to come under the divine discipline of God, and it's a certainty. A person that has learned doctrine and is not applying it, first of all, they're not going to remember it. It's not important to them. They're under that same shadow of God's wrath upon them. This is the message. And who's preaching it? Where do you hear it? You don't hear it. How many people understand what's going on in James? How many believers can just turn it right back on them and do them a great service when you say, hey, you need to understand, you can't explain to me how your false doctrine fits. It doesn't. You, you, you just fumble and bumble, and I'm giving you the truth. That's what this is about. It doesn't have anything to do with believers. It doesn't have anything to do with eternal salvation. And then what you need to do is really concentrate, forget about the what he's talking to believers and that's when you can go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and explain this is what is not contradictory there is no works with regards to being justified before God there is works to be justified before God experientially and to man I don't know why time just seemed to flow, flow uh, flew Blue, flown, flied. It flied away. <laughs> uh, I just, it's just so important for me to have y'all being prepared by turning it on them. And here's the fun part. Now, you might think it's dread, but it's not. You're not trying to belittle them, but when you turn it on them and you see them floundering and you're standing there and you have the answer and you impart that to them, isn't that a position you want to be in? And you know that they're going to listen to you because you've asked them questions that they can't answer. And now they're concerned. Now they're worried about their eternal destiny because they thought it had took works. And you're saying, no, works. In fact, if you, ha if, if you keep buying that lie, you'll never be saved because salvation is only given as a gift. If you think you've got to work for it, you'll never get it. Well, that's it for tonight. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty word and for giving us the time and the Holy Spirit 
everything we need in order to understand this portion of Scripture, which is so, has done incalculable harm because believers don't understand it and they've been abused by those who misuse it. We want to be the ones that can stand firm and explain what this is about. It has nothing whatsoever to do with our eternal salvation. That was taken care of on the cross, and it's a done deal once we believe in Jesus Christ. And we need to stand by that and show others the way. We pray that you will help us to focus on this and remember it, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.